by stimulating intellectual conversation? Are you turned on by the idea of engaging with thought leaders from across the United States? Do you go gaga over exploring important ideas from influential books, research, and essays? Then welcome to Curiosity Porn, the place you can satisfy all those intellectual urges guilt-free. Your hosts are Dr. Guy Crane, Professor of Philosophy at Rose State College, and Professor James Davenport, Professor of Political Science at Rose State College. However, the views expressed here are solely the views of the hosts and their guests and do not reflect the views of Rose State College, its administration, faculty, or students. And now, here are James and Guy. Hey, Guy, how are you? I'm all right, James. How are you doing? I am doing well. Uh, we are the co-hosts of Curiosity Porn. Now, let me tell you, if you're listening and you're expecting, you know, some uh, exotic dancers and some stuff like that, this is not the show for you. You've missed the point. We'll explain that a little bit more in a, a bit. Uh, but we are all about what? Exploring ideas, right? Curiously exploring ideas, not afraid to ask questions, uh, following where our curiosity enticements lead us. There you go. And so that's what we are about. Um, what's been going on in your world lately? Um, lots of stuff. Um, dealing with an old dog. I've got a son who's about to be married. Oh, my. Yeah. Um, pretty Major busy. life change right there. Pretty big life change. Yeah. 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 In fact, uh, one of our friends joked, it's it's kind of like getting divorced to, to actually get a kid completely <laughs> and utterly out of the nest. I wouldn't know anything about that. So I'm just going to leave it there. So how did we come up with the name Curiosity Porn? I'm sure everybody who's listening is like, why in the world would they use that as their name for their podcast? Well, okay, so we were brainstorming names. This is one that I came up with, right? But I, I kind of borrowed it from, I mean, it sounds like a joke, but I borrowed it from a fairly serious source, actually. There's one of my favorite philosophers, uh, C.T. Wynn, who's at University of Utah, he has an entire um, paper that he wrote, uh, co-wrote with this other philosopher, Rebecca Williams, called Moral Outrage Porn. Now, I hadn't read the paper, but I had heard him on podcasts, like, discussing what this was. Mm -hmm. And he actually talks about it in some of his, his other papers, too. Anyway, so that's what got, got this idea in my head. And so I pitched that to you, and you liked it. And then I decided, like, we should probably go read that paper, <laughs> That's usually helpful, yeah. right? <laughs> so um, I, I sent it to you. I read it. And I was kind of like uh, shocked at just how perfect a paper it is to like introduce what we're trying to do. Because uh, I just thought like everything that he said that that moral out, moral outrage porn is, it's, it's like the exact opposite of what we were trying to do here. Sure, sure. And if I, if I remember right from the paper, he, he goes into this explanation of how you know, there we've we've transformed that word porn into to capture certain ideas about a variety of things, right? And he talks about things like food porn or real estate porn. So tell me about how that the usage of that word has has changed somewhat in the popular vernacular, if you will. Well, right. And he does say that like there does seem to be a clear distinction between the term pornography and mm -hmm. porn. Whereas like pornography still seems to straightforwardly refer to the classical usage of content of a sexual nature, right? But this use of porn has become like slang to where like anything can be porn, food porn, real estate porn. I will admit to you 
that on Facebook, I am an avid follower of multiple accounts that can only be described as New England fall foliage porn. Okay. <laughs> now that might sound like the least sexiest kind of porn that you could, you could look at, but for me, it's, it's pretty great. And the idea, right, is that um, any of this content can be sort of uh, represented in, in some medium, right? Uh, a, a, a GIF, or, do you say GIF or GIF? Uh, I say GIF, we're but I've go heard GIF. GIF. Okay. Okay, we're going to have angry listeners probably. from that debate alone, probably. Um, GIFs, pictures, videos uh, of whatever that content is. Is it food? Is it uh, New England? Whatever. And the idea is like just looking at that is gratifying. It's, sure. it's, it's satisfying. And um, it, even like you said, it could be like real estate porn, which I also follow accounts like that, where you're just looking at someone's beautiful finished kitchen or just a house that's massive. And it's porn, right, in the sense of like you don't actually have to grapple with the things themselves. Uh -huh. Like I didn't actually have to take on the costs of going to Vermont or Maine or something to look at the trees. And sure. uh, I kind of got the payoff without even actually engaging, right? And so here is, if I can, if I can uh, stay true to, to what they're saying, they're saying like anything porn, pick something, is going to be a representation of that thing used for immediate gratification while avoiding the usual costs and consequences associated with it, right? Sure. And so they mention like all kinds of what we might think is just like innocuous kinds of porn, like food porn or real estate porn. But they also mention like, I mean, there's problematic kinds of porn, even in that regard. So they, mm -hmm. they one they mention is, Poverty porn. Okay. Right. So imagine and imagine an account that shows uh, folks in really destitute conditions in third world countries or something like that. It could be porn in the sense of if like I look at that and I'm I'm like moved to have this sense of oh those poor people or this sense of empathy or a sense of like gosh that's not okay. But then I don't actually do anything at all with respect to like helping them get out of poverty. Right. Sure. So I've like have this sensation of like self-congratulatory morality or something I, like that. I, I feel better about myself because I've recognized this horrible condition, uh, but I don't have to do anything to address that horrible condition, yeah. right? I have just kind of exposed myself to that imagery and said, oh, that's horrible. Uh, and now, now I'm going to go do the dishes or now I'm going to go yeah. mow the lawn or exactly. something like that. Yeah, so... Uh, I didn't really help at all, did I? Okay. I'm, I'm guessing that before you read this paper, I probably could have just said the word moral outrage porn and you would have known exactly. Probably oh, sure. Thing. Right. So uh, those things that you see and the best place to go to view this is certainly social media, right? Where every headline seems to be generated just to gin you up, to get you upset, outraged over something, Right. Uh, and what I found interesting was uh, their take that uh, actually that sensation of getting outraged is kind of satisfying. It kind of makes you feel good that you're outraged, oh, yeah. right? Uh, and then you walk off and go do something else. Yeah, right, right. right. Um, so it's, it's going to be representations of moral outrage where that they, I mean, they mentioned that it could be like you're watching someone else expressing moral outrage and maybe they're like co-feeling along mm -hmm. with them is satisfying. But I, I'm thinking most of what they're thinking about are actually like events that are cherry picked that are supposed to induce in you that these set of circumstances themselves are morally outrageous. Like right. that's right. the moral outrage porn, right? And it's complicated because like it may very well 
be a set of circumstances that are morally outrageous, right? But it becomes porn when I get, I, I'm like, I'm consuming that material for the sake. For of the, the sake of consuming it, yeah, right? Yeah, the, gratifica the gratification. I'm, so I'm not actually going to go do anything to fix the thing that's morally outrageous. Um, and in fact, it, it could be curated in just such a way, like you were saying, like this is, this is what clickbait is, is like, right? Mm -hmm. This is how uh, probably otherwise serious news agencies package things in order to get eyeballs on them, right? Where, you know, you can probably think of more examples than me, where let's say I'm a member of one political party or the other, and I'm, I want to go consume partisan news, and part of that partisan news feed might be a very cherry-picked curation of quotes from po political opponents right. that seem right. ridiculous, outrageous, for sure taken out of their context to right. seem especially uh, just unacceptable, right? And like, I just reading those can make me seethe about just how terrible my, you know, my partisan opponents are. Right. And that moral outrage can give me a sense of smugness. Look, we're clearly the better of the two parties or whatever. Uh, it might justify me in my like horrific characterization of those people. Uh, I don't know if you ever heard people, I, I've seen people on social media stop saying the term dem, de, uh, Democrat and they've started saying Democrats. And it's kind of like, holy that's been around a while. Wow. Yeah, that's that's a lot, right? Um, but it it then gives me, and they even mention in the paper, uh, Wynn and Williams, that it can also just be satisfying just to feel the outrage itself, right? right? The the rush of of that. I'm I'm more interested in sort of the what what they're saying you might get as as a uh, simplicity, clarity, uh -huh. you, in your moral outrage, things seem incredibly clear. Black There's and no white. Black and white. There's right. no nuance. I don't have to worry about complications or anything like that. I can just be angry because this is just wrong. There's just nothing to pick apart here. Um, and if I'm just consuming that for the sake of, of that kind of gratification, is it bad? They argue that it's bad, but I, I think... Help us out. Are there more obvious examples uh, of moral outrage porn? Oh, sure, right? So all you have to do is go on Twitter and look at uh, the news feed. For somebody's politician that somebody hates, they're constantly going to put something up there. You know, Trump said X, right? Whatever Trump said X, that's going to be the outrage. And uh, and like you said, often it's taken out of context, Uh I saw this with President Obama once. He made a comment uh, in relation to Cuba, and, and the comment was taken out of context. And boy, it ginned up the right wing, you know, social media movement. And boy, they were just hammering him. I can't believe he would say whatever it was. Right? Uh, you see it on uh, on the left uh, as well. Again, with Trump uh, here in Oklahoma, uh, I would say you know, uh, on the left, uh, Governor Stitt, or even more so. Uh, Ryan Walters are are folks that people love to share. I, I hadn't gone there, but you're totally over. right. He is he is clearly a a whipping boy for leftists who want outrage porn. Yes. I, I hadn't thought yes. about that. I mean, because I won't I won't lie. I've seen some of those headlines too, and I have been outraged by that. Uh, but I <laughs> well, didn't put now, that together. There, there is something. So there is a sense of engagement within social media on this that might not be present in some of these other kinds of porn, right? So. 
you might go and enjoy looking at fall pictures in New England, but the likelihood of you sharing those broadly may not be that high, right? You're just looking at because you like to look at them, yeah. right? Uh, or uh, or I might like to watch, you know, uh, video clips of football games, mm. and I just get a rush out of watching that, but I don't really share them, right? With outrage porn, there seems to be some part of the gratification is I'm going to retweet or I'm going to share that content, and that's going to demonstrate my moral outrage in a way that I think is, if not just gratifying, is in some way meaningful. I'm contributing to making more people aware of this outrage. That's interesting. So in other words, like that's part of the illusion maybe that it feels like I actually did do something. Right. When in right. fact I did not do anything. You know, they, um, uh, when and Williams briefly relate this concept to uh, another paper in philosophy. I don't know if you and I talked about this or not, but moral grandstanding. So uh, Tozy and Warmke are the philosopher's names who wrote that. And they talk about how there's a lot of ways in which people like say these things, share these things, but it's, it's kind of a status game. It's, it's mm -hmm. performative. In other words, the fact that I am willing to say this or to share this is sort of a feather in my moral cap or something. Right. Sure. And one of those could be like piling on, like how extreme can I get? And it's kind of just, uh, uh, using moral judgment as a means of trying to gain recognition from others. It's a, it's a vanity play is really all it is. Sure. And it sounds like these are bedfellows, I guess, in a, in a, in a very straightforward way. If I get morally outraged and I have a sense of like, well, like the current events in, in the Middle East right now, like, oh my God, that's just terrible what's going on over there. And I'm outraged that people would bomb each other or treat each other that way, whatever. Um, it does seem like I score civic points by telling other people about world events or something like that sure. on top of the fact that they're like outrageous world events. Um, but as we both know, my sharing that article didn't like reduce the number of bombs actually that dropped. Got dropped. Right. Yeah. Uh, and that kind of overlaps with something else that I know you have taken an interest in is kind of this, um, this notion of tribalism, right? Because I get cred with my tribe for sharing the outrage, right? I, uh, I feel more um, accepted. Maybe I get some likes and these kinds of things, right? So uh, it, there is some point at which this engagement furthers the gratification I'm getting from this activity, right? Yeah. Um, you know, I, we probably should have just an episode in the future totally dedicated to the tribal psychology. Oh, I, absolutely. But really briefly, all we mean here is that some people engage in uh, not just straightforward displays of rah-rah my team, but what appear to be very carefully, thoughtfully crafted arguments, statements, forms of analysis, and under controlled conditions, you can find out that ultimately they're actually just playing some sort of identity expressive or identity protective kind of game. It's somewhat performative. It's right? performative. Yeah. But what's crazy about it is the degree to which it can happen unwittingly. Like mm -hmm. the person, like the person who is engaging that activity feels like they were thinking at the time right. when you can show, especially in a lab and between group settings, you can kind of show like, mm, that's not really what was going on though. <laughs> and you're right that like, those kinds of moments, and I think that's why, like, the easiest example we have is, like, going to partisan news sources where 
I already feel like I'm amongst my peers and my sure. team. And right. part of what makes us the team that we are is derogating the non-team members, right? right? Like saying like, look at how terrible they are. And again, that you're right. That it, it, The reason that goes hand in hand is because that gives me such a black and white view of the world. There's no nuance. I don't have to accept that people are messy, that even my side probably has flaws. Uh, you know, that's that makes the world hard and less fun, right? Right. And so, yeah, it's not as fun as just being morally outraged. Exactly. Now, they talk in the paper a little bit how different kinds of porn can become problematic. And before we get into what makes moral outrage porn bad, what in general, what's the criteria for how they set up? What's how can any of these porns become negative? Yeah, that's important because they they want to say that the term itself is not a moral judgment of, mm -hmm. of the content itself, right. right? Because there could be just straightforwardly non-problematic kinds of porn. So uh, when mentions that, I think he says it's his wife, his wife who enjoys looking at organization. Organi point right. Yeah. I, I picked up on that. I actually, well, never mind. But I thought of someone in my life who, uh, when when they get upset, that might be the perfect thing. Uh, so I'm going to suggest that to them. Right. So the idea is like if if uh, if his wife's feeling uh, stressed or 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 whatever, she, out of control, out of control, or, right. Looking at pictures of incredibly neatly organized spaces or or workplaces mm -hmm. can can just bring a, a quick sense of calm and relief. Sure. So I think he didn't he mention like uh, a set of colored pencils all arranged right. perfectly yes. Array by shade by or shade. Yeah, 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 yeah. So it doesn't seem like that is is problematic. Uh, but the reason that they say it's not problematic is that like. What you are doing when you consume any of this kind of porn is you are instrumentalizing the thing being represented. You're like treating it as something merely to be used for your current purpose. Right. Well, and it seems like nobody's really that upset when you say like, I eat because stuff tastes good, <laughs> right? <laughs> uh, nobody says like, you foodist or something, right? There's, sure. no, there's no moral um, judgment attached to that. It seems like, well, yeah, I mean- there's other reasons to eat too, nutrition, but if you're eating because it's pleasurable, that seems fine. There's nothing wrong with instrumentalizing food in that way. It's also like if you had your own house and you want to be happy in it, you're probably going to decorate spaces in such a way that like you're happy and right. feel pleasure just being in your own space. Uh, one way to think about it is that like in all of these cases, the porn angle is reducing the content into a sort of object to be used, right? Mm -hmm. But that's just it. If we had like food porn or closet porn or organization porn, we're not reducing those things to objects because they're already objects. Like right. that's fine. That's, that's what they are. That's what they are. Sure. But there could be things that we instrumentalize that it's that it's the instrumentalization of that particular thing that is really the problematic thing. So that's exactly why like it seems like something like sexual pornography is, is morally questionable because uh, if you instrumentalize uh, what is in effect just human sexuality mm -hmm. and sexual contact, uh, that seems like exactly what you don't want to do with human relationships sure. and sexual activity, right. right? You don't want to reduce that to an object. You don't want to use people in that way. Sure. That seems like a reduction that has some problems attached to it, right? And and the same would go for like when they mentioned like poverty porn too, right? right? Exactly. So if I want to like just scroll through, you know, horrendous pictures of 
what has happened in Syria and people, refugees that barely have a slice of bread to, or, to eat or whatever, um, then it does seem like I should care about the fact that people are poor, but I don't do anything if I'm just looking at poverty porn. I just know that in my heart, I feel the right sorts of things that people in my position of privilege relative to those people should feel. And then I just move on. And it's like, I don't know that I want to instrumentalize A, the people who are poor, <laughs> or B, my sense of compassion for people right, who are poor. Right. Like that seems like something I wouldn't want to toy with. And those folks need to go maybe talk with Peter Singer a little bit. <laughs> Probably say, so. Right. Yeah. Uh, for listeners who don't know, if you want to go read Famine, Affluence, and Morality, very famous 1971 or two paper by Peter Singer, kind of on this very thing. But let's be real though. I mean, what's kind of sad is that, and maybe we'll, we'll bring this up later, is that there are nonprofits who work in like exactly those kinds of fields that mm -hmm. weirdly know that we have that sort of like draw to the pornographic nature of the content. Sure. And maybe they can capitalize on that to get us to like write a check or something. Surely you and I both grew up with those. Was it Sally Fields? Yes. Right. The, the, uh, the humane society or something about animals and it, well, it, I was thinking about, Oh, you were thinking about the one with the, the children and children. Yeah. 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 So I keep thinking of the ones where oh. the person comes on this, the ASPCA, yes, that's yeah, yeah, with yeah. Uh, Sarah McLaughlin's okay. song right. that I would love to sing a few bars of here right now, but we don't own the rights to. <laughs> um, but there's a reason why she's got this like sweet, soft song. And then they're not showing you pictures of animals that are like best in show on, on Thanksgiving right. Day or, or something. Or chasing the ball in the park with the, you know, the owner throwing it. And no, it's, love, it's, the, yeah. it's the dog that has three legs. It's mm -hmm. the cat that's missing part of its lip or something, right, right? right? And you're supposed to cry buckets because like, oh my God. And the fact that you feel so bad for that three-legged dog, um, they're hoping will actually lead you to send them some money, right? So, so what you're saying is some of these groups can feed you this kind of porn, whatever kind it is, in hopes that you will take action by sending them some money and supporting whatever yeah, their mission I, is. Right. I mean, the sad part about that is, though, is that there's no part of the commercial that tells you what your money is actually going to bring about and its effect, right? right. Like, uh, for all I know, maybe they have horribly run budgets and they're not really helping a whole lot of animals. I don't know. I mean, right. they don't say 90 that. 90% the of ad. their funds are going to pay administration. Maybe, and, you know, right. Maybe 10% actually get to somewhere. But you wouldn't know it from the ad. It's just a, it's just a porn ad. I mean, it's like to get me feel really bad for those kids in, in the case of Sally Fields. I mean, there's a reason that those also had just pictures of kids with so many flies on their faces, right? right. Again, they're right. not showing these kids all cleaned up and, and looking their spiffiest, right? That's right. It is to like do that kind of work. And the idea is that when and Williams are bringing up is that like there's, for I mean, probably pick your poison. There's some parts of us that like just get some gratification out of yeah. just having interacted with that representation of the content, right? And it seems problematic, especially in cases where like instrumentalizing that content is problematic. That's exactly where it's a bad idea. Mm -hmm. um, and... Well, you want to get back to moral outrage porn? Yeah, they, so, so they go in and they start explaining why moral outrage porn is bad in and of itself. So let's talk about that a little bit. Okay, I, well, they go through two different reasons, but there's one in particular that I, I thought mattered. 
uh, more to me anyway. And that's the, uh, I'm going to use a fancy philosopher word here, the epistemic ah, downsides. Okay. So all we mean by that fancy word is like having to do with our beliefs, our ability to weigh evidences, our ability to make inferences from evidence, the kinds of reasons we use to defend the conclusions that we draw, belief states. Uh, this is all we mean by epistemic, epistem uh, epistemically bad things, right. okay? So epistemic bad stuff would be like having a lot of false beliefs, losing out on true beliefs, being terrible at weighing evidences. Okay, well, they basically think that moral outrage porn is going to move us down that path because if I, okay, what are the kinds, uh, what, what kind of content would be most conducive to moral outrage? It's going to be kind of like what we just said. It's going to be things that are very black and white. Mm -hmm. They are outrageously, heinously, awfully evil, terrible, shocking. And the content that is going to get shown to me is going to, if it's ultimately designed to function as moral outrage, outrage porn, then there just can't be context and nuance and people that are messy and, sure. and well, you had to be there kinds of stuff. It needs to be very oversimplified. In other words, because if it was, right, the idea is like, you know what? I thought of a good example. Um, I don't remember where this took place. Maybe it was at the Capitol, but there was a demonstration and a clip of a video got uh, uh, shared all over social media of this teenage boy in a MAGA hat mm -hmm. interacting with some Native Americans, I think, right? Right. Do you remember the context of this at yeah. all? Yeah, so they were at the Capitol. It was a school. It was a private school from Kentucky. Uh, there's some kind of quasi-confrontation that seems to be a, 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 and you get about a five-second clip of that, and everybody is uh, morally outraged yeah. that uh, it looks like this this young kid is confronting or or uh, these these young uh, high school students are uh, in trying to intimidate uh, Native Americans. It may have been even uh, a Native American veterans group. I don't remember, but that type of thing. And then when you learn the broader context, that's not really what. No, what it was really was not nearly right. as exciting as that, right? And, right? and but that's the point. So the the clip gets shared. And the idea is if it's prepackaged in a particular way, then people who are most prone to want to consume moral outrage porn will fill in the blanks in the context in right. just such a way right. to make that event more conducive to giving them the moral outrage that gives them all the gratification, right? Exactly. So I don't start to imagine, well, hold on, maybe there's lots of things we don't know about this. Maybe something happened before this that would have completely changed the way. You're not thinking like that. You're just thinking like, ah, oh, them and them, and they're against each other, and it looks very tense. And so that sort of consuming moral outrage porn then means that I have to actually make some epistemic moves to get there. So the distinction that, that Wynn and Williams draw is that like there's mechanistic porn where like you don't really have to do anything other than just consume it mm -hmm. in order to get the gratification, right? Just look at the picture of the food. Just look at the, you know, naked persons having sex, okay? But in the, in the case of some porn, and specifically moral outrage porn, I have to actually form something like belief states about what I'm consuming in order to get there. Like, I have to have a certain uh, set of beliefs that warrant 
in my view, the moral outrage. There has to be some kind of precognitive thing going on that sets my mind in a certain way that when I see that, it triggers a particular response. Right. There, in other words, like there's, there's not moral outrage porn unless there is an interpretation of that content that right. gets me the justification for moral outrage, right? And so the idea is it's got to be packaged in such a way that I can very cleanly and easily come to that interpretation. Now, the problem is, right, is that if I am seeking that moral outrage and all the gratification that comes with it, that aim is probably almost always at odds with the aim of developing beliefs with a sensitivity to accuracy, <laughs> to like, is my belief true? Right. If I literally just was worried about like, well, wait, what is happening here? I would probably be in that context way more careful about like, I'm sure there's more going on than these five seconds that this video is, is telling me. Like I should go find out what was going on. But if I'm wanting to be outraged, it's probably all there that I need, mm -hmm. given the blanks that I'm going to fill in, especially depending on whose team I play for, rel you know, relative to who's in the video. Right. And so I can definitely get to moral outrage if I oversimplify or if I characterize as more extreme. Look, who in their life hasn't said something kind of funny and problematic that they probably should have thought about before they opened their big gap, right? But if I just like grab that particular quote from a politician and then that's it, I, I literally like equate that person with that one sentence out of their mouth, that would absolutely justify me in a lot of cases and being very morally outraged and to feel very justified then that I'm not you or I'm not, I don't support you or whatever. But that is not the same thing as saying like, well, is that person really like that? That is not the same thing as sitting down with that human being and having a lengthy discussion with that person, right? Uh, but that latter practice doesn't get me to the moral outrage. When is the last time you sat down to coffee and had a long conversation where you learned about each other's families and people's, per even people with whom you disagree, right. their personal histories, what their educational backgrounds are, and literally like 30 minutes in, you finally say like, I knew it. I knew I was just as justified as I ever was from those five seconds to be just as morally outraged. Like, it's just not likely. It's exactly right. And and the problem with that two things, right, uh, the time it takes to do that is way longer than the time it takes for me to get the gratification from the moral outreach porn, right? I've got to actually uh, sit down, have some kind of conversation, learn about that. And the moment I start learning about that other person as a person and on some caricature that some meme has been floating around on, my whole mindset begins to change uh, and I don't treat them as that. And so, uh, but that takes a lot of work and a lot of effort. It's a lot easier just to be morally outraged and, yes. and I can be satisfied in my, in my convictions that I'm right, they're wrong, I'm good, they're bad, uh, you know, however you want to phrase it uh, and go on down the road. Uh, and so, but that gets me to this question is, what do they identify as some of the negative outcomes of this kind of proliferation of moral outrage porn that we see? Well, I mean, so just, just to step back before I, I get on that bridge, I mean, that, that's the whole point, right? That like, if I am using that content to get my moral outrage and the gratification that comes with it, then I am in essence practicing you might say it this way, getting my beliefs on the cheap, uh -huh. right? So in other words, I can go grab a belief now because it helps me get to the moral outrage, whatever that means that like, 
the the kid in the MAGA hat is terrible or like some politician is terrible, right? Um, or what this uh, superintendent, state superintendent said is sure, just unacceptable. Right. But I didn't actually have to do hardly any evidentiary work to get that belief, right? I grab it because it will get me the moral outrage and getting my beliefs on the cheap is a very bad precedent to set if I want to be a person who like is a pretty decent epistemic agent in the world. Sure. The getting it on the cheap means I don't have to verify the accuracy of this, right? I don't have to go any deeper to ensure that what is being communicated to me is an accurate representation of whatever this person said or did or, or whatever the event was, right? I just, boom, it's there. I'm outraged. It confirms. So you've got a lot of confirmation bias going on here with sure. this, right? It confirms what I thought about this person or this event or this group to begin with. And then I can move on feeling like, yes, I'm right. I knew I was right. And this has just confirms that. Yeah. So, I mean, think about like, two or three things like you're, you're setting up for that are not good. I mean, at least one is it's just epistemically lazy. Like you're the degree to which you're willing to uh, uh, consume cognitive kinds of porn rather than mechanistic kinds of porn, especially uh, is going to lead you to just be a lazy belief getter. Like, sure. don't you think you should like suspend judgment until you have a considerable amount of evidence as opposed to just like seeing five seconds of clips and just get angry and think, you know, everything which is the second bad thing too. If I can, if part of the attraction of moral outrage porn is that, that satisfying sense of certainty and clarity about the world that it gives me, I am well on my way to epistemic arrogance, right? Like I am way more confident in my beliefs than the actual evidence should allow me to be. Right. And that's a bad place to be. That means, that mean, uh, I tell my, my logic students all the time that there are, establishments in the greater metro OKC area who want them to be far more confident in their belief that they are going to win a hand of blackjack than they actually are. And when you're like, no, I'm the person who's going to go beat the craps table, going to beat the blackjack table, Riverwind would love to disabuse you of that notion. <laughs> uh, you know, however, if that takes you $10 or if that takes you $500. Exactly. Or 10000 Yeah, they, they will oblige. And so, yeah, it's bad to have that kind of um, bad epistemic setup, but I mean, it's, I, I've been belaboring the epistemic point, but I mean, it's, it's also morally bad for all kinds of reasons. I mean, there are things that happen that seem like we should be morally upset about that. Sure. And when, I mean, there's a couple of things that could go wrong here, right? If I'm a consumer of moral outrage porn, like if I, if I'm that outraged by just like five second clips, like how do I get to the right level when I actually do witness firsthand in my life with people present something that's morally outrageous? It's kind of like the, the sense of proportion seems yes. to be all distorted, right? I'm outraged about everything. And so how does anyone distinguish between what's truly something that we should uh, morally, ethically be concerned about versus all of this other stuff that's just ginned up to create this kind of uh, temporary feeling of outrage, right? How do we distinguish between those? You know, exactly. And you and I have um, brought this up before about like the kinds of things that, that we even grew up with feeling like we had to get outraged about compared to things that we didn't get very outraged about. Right. So 
uh, I, I have a, a fairly low church evangelical history uh, religiously, and I remember there were certain things that were just supposed to be shocking. Uh, and in my neck of the woods, I mean, some of those things um, were very doctrinal minutia. Sure. Like, um, did, uh, you know, did a, a, a congregation down the street allow women to lead in a certain capacity. That's outrageous. But what we didn't get particularly upset about was like poverty or <laughs> arrogance or like, oh, well, that's just something you do in your prayer closet. And that like sense of like having a very warped proportionality mm -hmm. of what was outrageous, what was not, uh, well, is, is the next thing they worry about. It was exhausting, right? right. Because if you're so, the idea is like, I, I don't have the cognitive or biological, call them whatever you want, resources to be morally outraged by everything all the time, right? right? Like I can't do it, I'll, I'll burn out. And so if there really are things in life that warrant the gravity of my outrage sometimes, I probably should budget, yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. Budget the amount of outrage that I'm willing to sure. put into anything, right? And you know what? That might mean that there really are headlines that maybe they're not clickbait or anything. Maybe they really are reflecting of events that really are bad. But if I'm just not connected to them in any meaningful way, I'm probably not helping anybody by just being angry about it right. while I'm scrolling through my phone or something, right? It's not like I should be happy about it. And it's not like I want to develop apathy, but there are going to be cases where not only is this outrageous, it's outrageous precisely because it does involve me in a very direct way that I need to engage. Now, there are cases where like, maybe I am too apathetic and that is something I could be doing something about and I need to get outraged by that. But if we're talking about specifically the porn, then what we really are talking about is getting the gratification in a way that is never going to require me to engage the actual content being represented. Right, right. right? A couple of things I want to mention here, and then I want to talk about how curiosity porn is not like these others yes. that we've talked about, right? Uh, so uh, following up on what you said, you know, this kind of environment can make you feel like you've accomplished something when you really haven't, right? Uh, I think of, when I think of that, I think of, hashtag activism, right? So mm -hmm. I just put a hashtag on Twitter, you know, hashtag poverty or hashtag racism. Or, and I feel like, oh, see, I'm being a good person. I'm, I'm signaling that I'm on the right side of this stuff and that I'm outraged by whatever that is. Uh, and yet I've taken no meaningful, concrete steps to address the problem that I think is a serious problem that has got me outraged. Uh, and so uh, we get into this, this kind of, uh, mindset of, I don't really need to do anything about it. I, why should I be bothered to get up and go address poverty or address racism or address any other issue you want to be addressed about? I'm sharing my outrage with others. That is sufficient. Yeah. Yeah. There's something very, um, I got here roundabout. It's obvious since we're talking about pornography, but there's something very, um, voyeuristic, mm -hmm. just sitting in the peanut gallery, right? Right, right. Um, in other words, yeah, I am, I really am objectifying things that ought not to be objectified. If this really is morally outrageous, let's not reduce that to just something for me to hashtag. Right. Maybe I should 
go volunteer go at the volunteer. Uh, the local uh, food bank or maybe I should be writing a, a letter to my senator. That's or, right. That's yeah. right. Yeah. yeah. Um, the other thing that uh, it comes out of this is that this kind of lack of curiosity. Right. I'm not going to I'm not going to take the time to explore this issue any further than seeing that venting my outrage, and then moving on. Yes. So this is exactly why I thought this paper was so, so good and timely. Because um, if I am even inclined or prone to consume moral outrage porn, I right there am at least paying an opportunity cost for other indulgences I could have given into that are actually non-problematic, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, we're not just talking about fall foliage porn here or food porn. Uh, maybe that's fine too. But the idea, right, is that like if moral outrage porn has exactly these kinds of costs, then they're like the death of the exact kinds of things I could do cognitively that are really good for me to do. Right. So if I'm certain about who's good and evil in a situation and it, the world is that clear and I'm just willing to say that I'm right, on so little evidence like that right there is going to be to be the death of further investigation, asking questions, finding things out, right? It's going to be the death of curiosity. Right. right. Whereas uh, if I saw something like that and I said, well, wait a minute, what is actually going on here? Maybe I just don't know. I know what, like it appears on first glance, given my sort of prior commitments, what it might be very tempting to think here, but what really might be going on here and even in the example we talked about, what you find out took months of that of sure. that video circulating for that to finally get out that none of us really knew the real context that were going on there after it had been consumed left and right, right. as as outrage porn. Um, you would learn things about how complicated the world is. And so I think that um, there can be a kind of satisfaction that comes from learning that things are complicated or that you were mistaken and things aren't so simple and that it's not all black and white and especially a sense of gratification that can come from realizing, and that's okay, right? right? I don't need that degree of certainty. I don't need that degree of like closure of every intellectual package in the world. Uh, And it's also gratifying because like, I don't need to be lazy to actually have a sense of gratification, right? I could instead engage material in a sense of curiosity and that might do very different work in terms of like the payoffs. Like it is pleasurable and I got smarter, right? (laughs) Can I, okay. Have you ever heard of the illusion of explanatory depth? I have not. Okay. So there is, uh, there's a few papers on this, but one that I like to use for my logic students, uh, I start with this one, I believe it's Susan Larson is this uh, researcher's name. Larson is the last name for sure. What she did is she uh, quizzed people on their knowledge of bicycles. So do you, how familiar are you with bicycles? Do you understand how a bicycle works? All using like Likert scale. So like on a scale of one to five, where would you rate your knowledge? Okay. So, and she had a mix of people. She had people who like said that they never cycled. She had people that said they cycled five times a week. Mm-hmm. And she she even categorized anybody doing five times a week or more, I'm going to consider experts in cycling, okay? And then, so after she does this, she uh, gives them uh, a piece of paper with incomplete bicycle diagrams on them. Okay. And all they have to do is draw like one of three parts. They either have to draw the pedals the chain, 
and the crossbar. And they could do it one at a time. And their job is just to like show on a bike where this would go. And uh, what was crazy, oh, and then I think she had a distractor task. And then after that, she then even gave them like multiple choice images so that they could still even decide which of these shows the correct chain placement. Okay. okay. So what was fascinating about this is that she had all these people, especially the people who had said like, I understand bikes completely, who were drawing machines that could not possibly even move, right? If you got on them, this is just a paperweight now, like it can't actually operate as a bicycle. And after they had done the drawing exercises, they had to re-rate their own confidence and, and the average confidence rating went way down. So in other words, be, they, they had a sense of the level at which they understood the actual mechanistic explanation of the thing right. was they, they thought of themselves as way more uh, deep on that, on that front than they actually were. Interesting. And so when they actually were put on the spot, the reason I'm bringing this up is because there is another, um, I want to say he's a business school professor, Philip Fernbach did basically the same thing, but with public policy issues. Okay. So that one was run in like 2012, I think. So the hot issues of the day were like cap and trade on carbon emissions, mm -hmm. unilateral sanctions against Iran, something else as well. And so he, so he gets a bunch of partisans and he says like, uh, do you, do you, um, do you have a position on this issue? Right. And he only grabbed those people that were at the extreme ends. Yes, I'm super for this or I'm super against it. And then he asked them, like, will you rate your understanding of that issue? And they, again, had a lot of people really confident. Oh, yes, I absolutely understand it. And then he just gave them uh, a chance to, like, explain to me, like, step by step, how would this policy work? What would it actually do? How would this actually go? And he talked about how, like, almost none of his participants could even come up with a, a sentence about how it actually worked. They really didn't understand how the policy would actually go. And then he had them rewrite themselves on the confidence scale and it went way down. Yeah. yeah. And so the idea is like, if you just get somebody to, to answer a question like, I wonder how this really works. I wonder if somebody can really explain it to me. That seems to be an antidote to that level of epistemic arrogance that you get in moral outrage porn, that sort of addictiveness to certainty that addicted, uh, that addiction to, um, the smugness and superiority and just the, also the addiction to everything needs to be neat, clean, simple, right. no nuance. I know who the good guys are, all of that. Yeah. And I'm thinking, at least for this podcast, I, why couldn't you in essence weaponize or, uh, titillatingly package, <laughs> uh, object of curiosity, sure. stuff that is just, it is deep. It is hard to understand, but it's interesting and it matters. Like it absolutely affects the world that we're in, the air that we breathe, et cetera. But we're not interested in the partisan moral outrage porn version take of any of those issues, right? Mm -hmm. um, maybe we're wrong about something. Maybe we're not. Maybe we don't know. Maybe it's still worth just wandering down a curious path to, right. to like see if we got any farther. And so that is basically what I thought of when, like, why not call this curiosity porn? We are going to explore more deeply different ideas. So, but in doing so, it's going to be very gratifying. Yeah. I'm well, going to feel much better about what I know about that topic. I, and I hope, right, in a way that, like, 
can be surprising. Mm-hmm. I mean, I love that. I mean, the, just the unexpected. Ever, you know, common wisdom says, and then you find out like, no, that's not how it works at all, actually. Yeah. I, I love that stuff. And a sense of like, when you really do understand sort of the mechanisms of something, like that is, uh, I mean, there's something deeply satisfying about feeling like you really have something to hold on to from the world now. Like, oh, probably a lot of things work similarly now. Uh, you, you do start to be able to apply those models in other places, that right. kind of stuff. And that, yeah, that's like deeply gratifying. But it seems like it's deeply gratifying in exactly the non-problematic way that is the counterpart to the problematic way that moral outrage porn is right. also deeply gratifying, right? And, uh, you know, for for those who uh, would like to know uh, or read this paper for themselves that we've been discussing, right? It's titled... Moral Outrage Porn. It's by Wynn and Williams. Do you remember what it was published in? It was the Journal of Ethics and Social Philosophy. It's, I believe, August 2020. And that that journal is um, uh, open. So it's not behind a paywall. You can can just search that. You can go and get a free PDF. So learn more about uh, about that. Uh, And just so you know, sometimes the podcast will be us having a conversation like this, exploring a paper and the ideas that come out of it. Sometimes the, the podcast will be us interviewing somebody who's written a particular paper or a book or an essay or something like that. Uh, and sometimes it'll be split between both. So we're going to be doing a lot of different stuff on here. Uh, it's going to be, I hope, a lot of fun. I expect it to be. Uh, but then again, we're kind of nerds. We like exploring ideas. Yeah. Uh, and I think that's, at the end of the day, that's what this podcast is all about. Let's delve into ideas that are out there, ideas that are in many ways shaping the way the rest of us see the world and finding out what's good, what's bad about them, how do they work, how do they not work, uh, what are, are, are their conditions that make it work in some places and not in others, all of that kind of information. Uh, we're going to be delving into that here through this podcast. Yeah. And I mean, our interests are very broad. I mean, yeah, I'm a philosopher, you're a political scientist, but beyond that, we we are interested in psychology, political psychology, social science, economics, uh, social philosophy, there's, there's social institutions. Much, yeah. There's just not much that we aren't going to try to, to find out more about. And I bet we'd even be willing for sure to allow listeners to suggest. Absolutely. Questions and, that we should, we should, Yes. We should explore. And uh, and we want to have listener feedback. You know, if you hear something in the conversation, you're like, hey, I don't, I don't like what you said. Let us know. Or I think that was really interesting. Can you tell me more? Let us know. Uh, because we absolutely want to uh, be engaged with you uh, more than just you listening to us, but sharing your ideas and thoughts about our conversations as well. That sounds right to me. All right. Well, we will see you guys next time. Thank you very much, Guy. Thank you. Hope you have a great rest of your day. You as well, James. All right. Thanks for listening to Curiosity Porn with the two best intellectual pole dancers in the United States, Dr. Guy Crane and Professor James Davenport. If you'd like to share a comment about today's episode, suggest a guest or topic, or just leave a compliment or complaint, you can reach us at C-U-R-P-R-N at gmail.com. We hope to hear from you.